This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you live on digital tape from my bedroom in my house in Brooklyn because it's a pandemic. I hope you're safe. I hope you're well. I have a feeling that many of you, like me, have been watching The Last Dance documentary on ESPN. This is the story of Michael Jordan's uh, last year with the Chicago Bulls and really the story of Michael Jordan's life and really a broader story about culture in in America in the late 80s and and pretty much through the 90s, which is really different than culture today. Uh, It's a fascinating documentary. It's really excellent. And I'm really psyched that I got to talk to the director, Jason Hare. Um, You get to hear that conversation right now. Jason Hare, nice to meet you. Um, You have made The Last Dance. It is a 10-hour, 10-part series about Michael Jordan, um, his career, and then the 97-98 season. Um, It's 10 hours long. I've got half an hour with you. I could talk to you for 10 hours, but thank you for your time. I appreciate it. First question, your comms people keep telling me that you're still editing the show like in real time, is that still happening? We are still finishing episode 10. We, we, we locked our final edit last week, or actually two Fridays ago, but we're still in finishing mode. It has to be translated into languages for 190 countries, and, and we have to do color correction and sound design and audio mixing and all that stuff. My assumption is that's a function of you guys moving up the release date. For the, this was supposed to come out in June. It's obviously out now. Is that Are you sort of scrambling still to get this thing out? Uh, yeah, we certainly had to accelerate the workflow quite a bit, and we certainly didn't anticipate that we'd be finishing episodes when part of the, the yeah. doc is airing, but we're not in any danger. I, will, I wouldn't say scrambling at this point. We've figured out the workflow pretty good. We have enormously gifted technological people on our team. I, I could barely turn this computer on and off, so luckily we have people who know how to do that. You did a good job. So I think people know the backstory, but this is a, a show you've been working on, I'm assuming, for many years. Yeah. When did you start? getting your hands on this tape? Initially in July of 2016, it was brought to me. So my research began then. Uh, in a lot of ways, my research began when I was eight years old because I've been you know, following basketball and sports and specifically Michael's career in the Bulls since I was a kid. So I had a, a big head start with that, but we didn't start actually formally working on it as a paid unit in an office until January of 2018. We started shooting in June of 2018, started editing September 2018, and we've been, our final interview that we conducted and shot was on March 10th. So we, wow. we've been working on it. Yeah. We did John Stockton for episodes nine and 10 on March 10th. Wow. So I'm doing a, a multiple part podcast series about Netflix and it's taking me forever. I can't imagine mm-hmm. how you're doing this. So the main hook here, right, is you've got this sort of mythical footage that I'd heard about on and off. It's It's all access footage of Michael Jordan in that 97, 98 season. And I was always heard this, something was going to be made of this. Did you usher it into completion? How, how did this go from being footage that existed and was sitting in an archive somewhere to an actual movie that you got to make? It was always uh, shot, or it, it was shot under the condition that Michael would have approval on when it could get released or if it could get released. Adam Silver told him that worst case scenario is you have the best home videos of all time if you let us follow you around with a camera for this entire season. So it took the better part of 20 years for him to finally say, okay, it's it's time to do this. I don't know the machinations that went into effect to make that happen. Um, and he was on board before I was even offered the job. So you didn't have to woo him. It was it, someone said go, and then you you got the project. It was not me. He was already on board. And then they started talking to directors um, 
And I had to, there was a, there was, you know, a, a considerable vetting process, meetings after meetings after meetings to get the job. And even then it moved at a glacial pace because of the, the partners involved. These are multi-billion dollar companies who are used to having their own way. And they all had to sit at a table and agree on the parameters of this thing. So it was, uh, the NBA, Jordan brand, Netflix, and ESPN are used to being the ones who have the final say and on everything from creative to logistics to finance. So they had to to come to an agreement there. So that took so long that I went off and did another feature length documentary for HBO called Andre the Giant. And that took over a year. And when I came off of that, they still hadn't agreed on all the stuff. And, and the timing just worked out there. I went right from Andre the Giant, had a couple of weeks off, and then they finally struck a deal hired me and we started working on January 2000 in January 2018. So they're going back and forth about this clause and that clause. You're st- you're out of it and at some point they say it's good to go. Here are the terms. Do you want the job? Mhm. Exactly. And so the idea that that Michael Jordan who's the subject of the documentary has control over the documentary is something that's come up a bunch. Ken Burns made comments about it. I'll ask you about that. Lay out sort of what that means in terms of practical considerations for you making a movie about someone who's then going to have control over what's in the movie? He certainly had theoretical control in in that if he wanted to pull himself from the dock or if he wanted to say that anything couldn't be used, he had the power to do that under the terms in which the the footage was shot a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But it was very soon into the process. I wasn't going to get myself into a situation where I was at the mercy of, of people who were trying to make a puff piece. And I didn't know these people that well, but but very early on in the process, it was it was evident to me that they were interested in telling a comprehensive story that was going to tackle some of the issues that that um frankly I thought that they would never allow me to tackle or anyone. And then my first time that I met with Michael, we discussed in vague terms, you know, some of the more difficult topics that we may have to approach. And I wanted to get his feeling on that. And he was always pretty nonchalant about it and said, you can ask me whenever you want. I think that. Michael is kind of like the supermodel that that nobody has the guts to ask out. And if someone just asked her out, like she would go with Michael. It's, it's I think he hasn't been asked a lot of these questions because whether it's the opportunity to ask them or it just wasn't the right time. If he's on a talk show or at a press conference or something, right. I don't necessarily think that he's been reluctant to ever answer any question straight up and honestly. He's he's a guy who definitely believes what he says and, and chooses his words carefully. So I found him eager to talk when we finally sat down. So there's a bunch of stuff in here that in the episode that just the episodes that just aired this week that I assume were prickly, right? You talk about gambling, you've talked about uh, his lack of political support for really anyone. I think in the episodes that I've seen already that are coming out next week talks about basically the idea that he's an asshole or certainly was an asshole at various times. Uh, you talk about the death of his father. Was there a particular thing that was most difficult for you to talk to him about, or you were most worried about talking to him about? I think that not so much the the death of his dad, but the the circumstances under which his dad died. His dad was murdered, carjacked and, and and murdered, and it was random. And and the conspiracy theories that surrounded his dad's death because it happened at the same time that all these gambling stories were coming out. It was pretty quick that that people were connecting dots, right? Uh, theoretical dots that somehow he was to blame for his dad's death, that, that somehow there were gambling debts involved or that, that he had, had not paid the right person or gotten somehow 
tangled up with someone who, who was a nefarious character and it resulted in his dad dying. And it was also, and then he left, then he take, then he leaves. And so all of that, that time span, he's so, gambling stories. His father dies. He yeah. leaves the NBA. And all there, was, there was a rumor that David Stern had, had done this secret suspension because of Michael's gambling right. habits. And he allowed Michael to pretend that he was leaving of his own volition for 18 months when in fact he was suspending him. So um, that wasn't as difficult to, a subject to broach because it's just frankly ridiculous. And I wanted to get his his take on that there was i was anxious or as eager to ask that question um but with his dad it's the circumstances surrounding his dad's death and then just the pain of someone accusing you of being responsible for your father's murder which only compounds how horrific that experience must have been for him i don't know him and i'm sure he has some degree of skepticism for anyone who comes in uh and sits there and asks him questions and, and doesn't know him and these are very private things that we're talking about and painful, delicate things to bring up that I doubt he even wants to talk about with his close friends. So I felt out of place. You know, I'm glad that I had spent a little bit of time with him before we got to that second interview is when we discussed these topics and a little bit in the third interview as well. But those are difficult things to bring up. I've never had to bring up anything that sensitive in any interview that I've done before because, you know, I'm seeing him there not as a superstar who should at answer these questions. I'm seeing him as a son who lost his dad in a horrible fashion. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pouring salt in that wound. Was there anything where you thought, I want to ask this, but I, I can't ask this guy on camera. I can't ask. I can't, I can't look someone in the face and ask him this question. No, there wasn't. So how many hours did you spend with him altogether? Eight. Eight. And then do you think through, all right, this is the difficult part. I'm going to have to save this, or maybe let's start at the beginning, or we save this for the end. In terms of my asking questions? Yeah, just, just your strategy for talking to someone for, for that many hours and when you're going to do which questions. The strategy w was um, very well planned out and rehearsed, and and uh, it was tactical that, that first time. We knew we had two interviews with him. We were supposed to have two, and we eventually got a third one as well, which was a godsend because we wouldn't have been able to complete the final four episodes of, of the project without that. And also go back and fill in so much of the stuff that we had lost. It's impossible to know everything that you're going to need for 10 episodes when you sit down with someone two yep. years before the thing airs. So we had to go back and get, be like, oh my God, I didn't ask him about that meeting he had with Magic after the after they won the title in 91 or little things like that. But I, I think more than anything, the strategy was to keep him occupied and engaged. So that meant asking questions in a non-chronological way. I wasn't going to start out and say, where are you from? And what was it like to grow up there? Yeah, we did cover that, but it wasn't right off the top. It wasn't like, you know, um, how many brothers and sisters do you have and, and that kind of a thing. I tried to kind of just just keep on dangling either verbal or physical with the iPad objects in front of him that would keep him engaged and entertained. And with him, everything he, he responds to games. He responds to challenges. He responds to any time where you're going to change things up on him he's ready to react. So to put that iPad in his lap and not tell him what was coming and just have him hit play and then to get his uh, visceral response, that those were fun moments. And that you, you knew you were going to do that, that I don't want to call it a gimmick, but that, that act a couple different times. I'm going to show mm -hmm. him an interview with Isaiah Thomas. I know it's going to provoke him in some way. I, wa I want to film that on camera while he's holding the iPad, by the way. Yeah, that idea came about um, the second time that I had spent time with him ever. This was a few months before we shot the first interview. Uh, I forget what brought it up, but we were talking about fights that he had been in. I think I asked him if he had ever been kicked out of a game or whatever. And then we started watching fights of his or confrontations of his. There was a YouTube clip of them and he was locked in. 
Like I showed him my phone and he grabbed the phone and just had it like this and the whole world disappeared and he was just watching this screen. And you could tell he was like, it was like a portal back into prime competitive MJ. And he's kind of murmuring to himself and yeah. telling little stories about like, there was a fight with Reggie Miller and he said, Reggie got kicked out of that game. I didn't even get kicked out. They had to suspend me later on because it looks so ridiculous that Reggie got kicked out of his home court, little things like that. And I'm thinking this is gold. You could do an entire episode of just Michael Jordan watching his own footage and talking about it. So that's where that idea came from. And, and also it was that he's not going to have the same response from elicited from a guy like me who he doesn't know and may or may not even respect, certainly as a basketball player. But if I show him Isaiah Thomas saying something, yeah. instead of telling him what Isaiah said to me, here, look what Isaiah said for yourself, or look what Gary Payton said, or look what yeah. Reggie Moore said, or look at your mom and hear your mom's voice and to see him become a different person than he became Mike from Wilmington when he's listen, listening to his mom read a letter. So it was just much more effective than my asking him repeated question after question. It's great. You could overuse it and you just do little bit of bits of it. But every time I see him hold the iPad, I get very excited. We had to, it was a delicate balance. We had to, we had to, because there are, there are times when I showed it to him that didn't make it into the, into the show. Uh, you, you said I, I didn't start off by asking him in sort of straight chronological questions. Um, a lot of folks have remarked this, this interesting thing you're doing with the chronology where you're covering the 97, 98 season, and then you're going back in time and you're moving in and out of time. Um, I think it's great. I think it, it tracks perfectly well. I've heard other people say, well, I'm a little confused by it, or maybe I, I, if you weren't there originally, this, uh, it, it's hard. It's how did you get to that, that, that idea of how we're going to tell this story by moving in and out of timelines? I've seen uh, the same responses and, and the people who are confused by it, I've seen, and I, I, you know, I didn't do my job if they're confused by it. So I'm, I'm not saying that they are wrong because they're, they're right to fail. They're wrong. <laughs> um, but I, I, I've seen people say, I wish they could just go chronologically. Well, if we did that, we'd have to go, we'd have to start the series with the birth of Phil Jackson, because that's how far back in time we're going back to the forties here mm -hmm. in, in telling his story. And we're going back to 1970 when Steve Kerr first discovered basketball by watching games at Poly Pavilion. Uh, so we can't go chronologically because the, the backbone of this thing is the 97, 98 season, but we also can't just tell 10 hours about the 97, 98 season. Cause who cares that they beat the Hawks on, you know, March 16th by seven points. Did you try other, other techniques as you were, as you were doing, you say, all right, maybe this is too confusing. Maybe it should just be two timelines past and 97, 98 or that's what it's supposed to be right now. It just, it, it got really, really challenging. Believe It was more confusing when we started, believe me, if, if you can imagine that. I mean, a, a lot of the first responses that we got from people that we showed outside was, was like, we don't, because that, that time warp graphic that we use is really simplified down from what it used to be this ornate, like, moments in time. Like, I'm picturing the, the string from uh, uh, True Detective and Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, and he's got the, <laughs> yeah that's my, he's got that's the murder board. My, if I took this hat off, that's what would pop out of my head right now. <laughs> um, but it used to be like, space shuttle landing and like like zipping back through time to show you in history where these things occurred. And then it's, it just became the simpler, 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 simpler as we can get it. But, you know, an example would be like the Nike story in episode five. We're telling that story. Episode five was, was always designed to be the rise to global fame. And then episode six was, was the price of that fame and the toll that it takes. So we could have told it in chronological order and had episode one be his Nike deal but then we wouldn't have had time to show you all the inner strife between Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson that we only had, we had to nail 50 minutes per episode, every single episode. Yep. And some episodes deserve to be 70 and some should have probably been 45, but we had to do, imagine writing a book 
10 chapters and someone says it has to be 30 pages a chapter. Stop there. Can't be 31, can't be 29. It has to be 30 pages. So it was really challenging to, to thread that needle. And uh, for some people it works and for some people it didn't, but it's supposed to be two converging timelines, which is, which is Michael's career from 84 to 98 and, and the 97, 98 season. And those converge in episode 10. We're going to take a quick pause to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back with Jason here. And now we're back with Jason. One of the reasons I love this series, in addition to the fact that it's just really well done and really compelling, is it really just syncs exactly with 84 to 98 is when I was most interested in popular culture and sports and music. And I remember all of these things I remember seeing on TV. There was no internet, basically, for almost all of this. I'm assuming a bunch of other folks feel the same way, but I'm also wondering what you think about Michael Jordan's fame had it had Michael Jordan existed 10 years later and we do have the internet and eventually we do have Twitter and blogs and all sorts of random found footage and imagining, you know, for instance, what the discussion around gambling would have been like and whether even in fact he becomes as big a deal uh, in an internet era as he did in a sort of monoculture era where that he was literally the biggest star. It was the only thing you were going to see on TV. It's a fascinating thing to consider and, and we've discussed it a lot in the edit room and, and afterwards part of his mystique is is the fact that he was so scarce and that athletes were so scarce back then so we only saw them on the court and to see them out of court out of uniform was really mind-blowing he could be doing something as mundane as as getting out of his car and walking to the locker room and that was mm -hmm. monthly tv a lot of people forget that before michael jordan arrival shots didn't exist now they're a staple of every live sporting event you see this is this is the athlete in walking through the corridor here's yeah. what he's wearing yeah, exactly. And that's a staple that that that's that's in every single rundown of every producer will tell you of every live telecast, whether it's a college game pro or a tennis match. Um, you're going to see those kind of preparation shots that didn't exist before, Michael, because people were so fascinated with him both on and off the floor. I don't know. To, I know he would have been terrible at it. I, I know that that he couldn't possibly care less about followers or likes or any of that stuff. He is. You know, I mean, he, he cared deeply about his image, which which you get at. I'm not sure how many times you say it directly, right? There's a lot of energy on his part and other people's part to build up Michael Jordan, this brand. He cared deeply about his image, I think, until he realized that he couldn't control his image and that he couldn't he could not know it's perfect. And that all of a sudden the cloak was off. The cloak of perfection is off. And he's just as imperfect as the rest of us. And I think that, that that was liberating for him to say that I no longer have to yeah. pretend that I'm perfect. Okay, this is me. I'm a human being. I like to gamble. I'm going to smoke a cigar on camera. So that that was kind of a weight that was lifted off of him once he didn't have the burden of perfection on, on his shoulders. So he, he certainly did craft his image uh, very, very well. It seems like every megastar today, Tom Brady, uh, LeBron James, and then people, plenty of people who aren't stars, now are their own media company. Um, they hire their own cameras to show them around. They create, you know, they have their own branding. I'm assuming he would have done that, would have hired someone to do that. And then you wouldn't have had this footage at all, right? Because the NBA wouldn't have had a year of, of access to it. Probably. Anyways, I know that, that's mine. It's, it's definitely interesting to hypothesize. Who knows? But I, I think that what you're getting now is a human being. Just to hear Michael Jordan drop an F-bomb, I think, is refreshing to people. And it humanizes him. And this is a guy who's who seemed beyond human for so much of his career. I think it's refreshing for people to sit there and see him laugh out loud at someone calling those early teams the traveling cocaine circus, or to see him, you know, sitting there next to a glass of tequila and, and a cigar, to see him just kind of be who he really is and embrace that. 
I was saving that question for later. So that's tequila. It's a very big tumbler full of tequila. I'm not judging. I just want to know where <laughs> there's tequila. I, from what I am told, that was tequila. We had a pretty big catering staff that day. I've read on Twitter that's that it's his own brand, and then someone else said actually it's not his own brand. It's a different it brand. I know he has his own brand of tequila. I can I can promise you that that day I was concerned about a lot more things besides what was in that glass. That was our first interview with him, so I was. Uh, I was kind of fixated on the glass for a while. It never goes down either. I don't know if you guys kept topping well, it off. What's interesting is 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 to look at the time of day outside and try and track that because a lot of times, like he'll start out with a full glass and he finishes his sound bite after we come back from a B roll and the glass is empty. Well, he didn't chug a glass of liquor in that time. It's just that we're we're splicing together two two sound bites. But so there is a bit of footage, and I, I can't remember which episode it is. I was binging these the last week where he basically says, I'm done. And he looks like he's taking the earpiece off and kind of calling quits on an interview. And I don't think it was about his father or anything that you would have thought would have mm -hmm. upset him. What was what was the thing that sort of it made you you obviously are showing it for a reason. What was the thing that he wanted to stop talking about? It was um, my question to him about whether that all of that intensity and that that reputation for being such a ferocious competitor was worth the price of being considered a nice guy. Yeah, because that's not the first thing that comes up when people think about Michael Jordan as nice guy. They think they think uh, win at all costs. They think perfectionist. They think nothing but the best. But they don't necessarily think nice guy. And in my experience, he was a nice guy or is a nice guy. He was very respectful to me, very respectful to our crew uh, each time that I've met him. So I wondered as a human being if he was ambivalent about that reputation. And um, he gave a pretty passionate answer and eventually, you know, got emotional enough that he wanted to, to take a break. So he's just he's scratching his ear. He's not even taking something out. Okay. It's just kind of a nervous tick. He's just saying, all right, enough, enough of this. And that was 45 minutes into that first interview is when that happened. That was an early question uh, in the first interview. But that's when we all realized, like, OK, this is going to be something different. And you show that after a series of stories about him punching teammates uh, harassing them, kind of breaking them down. A lot of the teammates then say, yeah, he really was an asshole to me, but it was worthwhile. Or, or, you really established that minimally he was an asshole. Um, and then at the end, he sort of defends himself and says, well, you can call it an asshole, but but I did it for a reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, to me, it's quite telling because even I think even still today, he doesn't quite sort of process what it was like for to, to work with him. And actually, I, you also clearly answer why he would have been, a t why he was a bad coach and manager. Right. I don't know that he's ever tried to coach. I, I know that it is it is maddening to him to have to sit courtside and watch Hornets games. He has told me that that he can only do it for like a couple of games at a time and then he has to go away he, because it's maddening for him to sit there and see something going on and, and, and know how to fix it, but not be able to go out there and actually do it. It'd be like a great chef going into a kitchen and someone's just a terrible cook and they want to grab all the all the, the utensils and do it themselves. But yeah, he's he's pretty indignant about the fact that he built that team into what it was and he was not going to let anyone come in and just benefit off the success that he worked so hard to attain for that team. So he was going to make them go through every bit of the hard work that he went through. And he says in that episode that he never asked anyone to do what he yeah. didn't do himself. Yeah, the derision in his voice when he's talking about uh, Steve Kerr and Luke Longley coming in, coasting yeah. on his reputation. Um, yeah especially Luke Longley, who was at Timberwolf for a while. So I have a specific uh, connection to Luke Longley as mm -hmm. well. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to get in? It's 10 hours that you couldn't get to, that sort of cutting room floor stuff. 
talking, you know, you got 50 minutes and you couldn't do it. Is there an extended version of this somewhere? I mean, a lot of the aspects of his childhood I, I found fascinating, particularly his, his high school years, just how off the map this kid was. Um, he wasn't ranked in the top 600 players in Street and Smith's as, as a college prospect. He wasn't ranked in the top 20 college prospects in, North, in the state of North Carolina going into his senior year. Part of that is because of technology. They had to go to press, and they went to press before he went to the five-star basketball camp as Mike Jordan, unknown yep. kid out of Wilmington, and was back-to-back -back MVPs for two weeks in a row at a camp that featured – Patrick Ewing and Chris Mullen and Len Bias and Chris Carter, the, the receiver from, from Minnesota, world-class high, high school athletes. And, and no one knew who this guy was. And by the end, everybody knew who he was. He was the best player in the country. So just the machination of how they even got him into that camp, they had to lie about his stats to get him into that camp because UNC saw him play and they wanted to know how he would hold up against the best. They said, is he really that good? Let, let's put him up against the best. And he didn't have the credentials to even get into that camp. Michael Jordan wrote, hand-wrote letters to the University of Virginia and UCLA, asking them to come watch him play because he wanted to play at their schools, and they went unanswered. So you have convinced me there is more than ten hours of story here. Was was this always going to be ten hours? Did you get where did you get ten hours from to begin with? It was uh, foisted upon me. I yeah. I advocated for four hours because I had just seen the Defiant Ones before we started production on this, and I think Defiant Ones is brilliant. And I thought if it takes them four hours to tell Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre's stories and, and that era of music, then we can certainly tell a story about a basketball team in four hours. Then they said, can you do eight? And I said, well, how about six? And that was as of like April 17, because we were shooting Andre the Giant. I remember we were shooting the Hulk Hogan interview and I got a call that said, can you do eight episodes? And I said that we can't stretch this out to eight, but maybe let's maybe six. And then the day that it was officially announced to the world, they said 10 episodes. And I raised my hand in the back, like, I'm sorry, what? So it was, it was, we just I, had to kind of work to our window. It does not feel stretched out at all. I mean, it, credit to you. And it's a great story. And you're telling more than the story of one man. Um, but boy, I would not like to work under those conditions where you get a couple extra hours added to, to your order. Yeah. I mean, two years is a long time, but, but when it normally takes a year to do an hour long documentary to do 10 of them in two years, is it's a credit to our team. We had like world-class best at what they do, editors and producers and archivists and all that. So, um, and we've been working nonstop and then for them to say, do it two months quicker, that was quite a shock, but I'm, I'm enormously proud. All of us are really proud. I'm enormously proud of that team for, especially under these circumstances to get this thing done. The music is great in this. It's uh, really, really heavy on on hip hop from the era. Um, there was a discussion about this on Twitter last night. And I was saying, you know, I, I remember again being a big NBA fan at the time and also being into hip hop. The two things were obviously connected, except if you watched basketball or went to a game, the NBA or NBC or whoever has just pretended or didn't know that hip hop existed. Did you know from the beginning I'm going to be putting in Tribe Called Quest and Stereo mm -hmm. MC? These are all my favorite. These are my favorite artists. All right, so we're going to compare CDs to collections afterwards. But was this a given? Like, this is this is going to be a big, important part of mm -hmm. this documentary from, from the get-go? Absolutely, yeah. Because this is as much an examination of, of nostalgia as it is an examination of a basketball team. And I really wanted to take you back. It, selfishly, I wanted, to, I wanted to edit music or footage to that music. I think I had two copies of Bigger and Deffer when I was a kid because I wore out the first one listening to I'm Bad and, and, and all those early L Cool J songs. So I edited that one myself because and I was at that game. So I thought, who like, I need to do this myself. But so much of that music, Eric being Rakim, I think that Michael Jordan is the Rakim of the NBA. 
he took a culture from one spot to somewhere that 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 no one could have even imagined. And I think that Rakim did that with hip hop and specifically with with rap. So that was one of the most fun parts of the project. Not for the music supervisor who had to clear all those songs, which is a nightmare. I was going to ask if that was tough because you got samples and the songwriter. Extremely. And there's there's a lot of songs we couldn't use um, that I really wanted to get in there, but we couldn't clear them in time. There's old public enemy stuff that they they don't know. They literally won't clear it because they can't identify the sample. So it opens them up to a lawsuit. The same went for I Know You Got Soul was supposed to be where I Ain't No Joke is in the in the first episode. I wanted to use that song because that's the first Rock Kim song that I ever heard. And I, I just as a kind of an inside joke to my brother, Brandon, who played that for me for the first time, I wanted that to be the song. Um, and we couldn't clear it because there's a horn sample or something in that that they couldn't clear. You still can't stream De La Soul on any of the services. Yeah, I know that's you're right. Uh, I mentioned this at the beginning. Ken Burns had a comment in the journal last week speaking derogatorily about what you did. I, I, I saw that earlier today you talked to Dan Patrick. You said you guys have quashed that beef. Um, what did he think he was saying and, and what was that discussion like? He, just the background as he came well, out. And said, be, in order for there to be a beef, there has to be some sort of animosity and I certainly it, it, had none towards him. It could not um, be a rivalry. Um, no. he, said, he said essentially, this can't be journalistically sound because the subject has control over the project. I would never yes. do that. He called and, and specified that what he meant was that in his world, in PBS and public broadcasting, that you cannot have underwriters who are remotely connected to the subject of the show or else you are not able to do the project. So when he said he would never, 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 never be a part of this project, what he meant was that it would literally be impossible to work with PBS and to have Michael Jordan involved in a documentary that focuses on the Bulls and Michael Jordan. So he wanted to let me know that he thought that he was taken out of context a little bit, and he assured me that that when um, when he had the time, he was looking forward to watching the doc, and that he's working on seven documentaries of his own right now. It was a call. It was a random New Hampshire number, and I'll always pick up anything from New England because that's where I'm from. And you know, if it's a tiny little newspaper, I, I would pick up. The oh, phone. he didn't. He didn't have a person reach out on his behalf. He, no, he called. No, calling. I was I was out for a walk in my neighborhood, and and he said, Jason Ken Burns. I said, Ken, as if I was expecting the call. I was just stunned that, that it was him. And you, and you knew what he was calling about. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to have Ken Burns call you if you do what you do for a living. He's an idol of mine. When I was a kid, he's one of the reasons why I wanted to grow up and do this for a living. Last question. When did you realize this was going to be a huge event because it's in a pandemic and there's nothing else to watch and it's going to be shared culture at a time when we're all stuck at home? Did that click for you in advance or only when it's not in advance? Well, maybe the day of, I think the day of it was trending on Twitter the, on the day that we premiered, it was trending on Twitter at like 11 in the morning. And there just seemed to be a buzz. I think Michael was on the back cover of the daily news or, or the New York post. Um, there's just nothing else to discuss in sports. I certainly was acutely aware of that being a sports fan myself. I'm dying for something to watch. Um, but I don't think I knew until after the first two shows aired and then the day after um, how much this was resonating with people and how many people actually tuned in. Um, but I'm still kind of, you know, we're still in a cave just about finished with this thing, but it, we're still working. Well, I don't, I don't know if you know, well, I guess you do because you're doing an interview every five minutes, but you are now a, you are now an economic engine. You are powering multiple blogs, Twitter feeds, stories, podcasts. People are all generating content around your content. So thank you for that. Thank you for making this show. Thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it, Jason. Good luck. All right. See you. Thanks again to Jason 
for making that happen. Um, I don't know if you can tell, maybe you'd even heard at the end of that conversation. There's a lot of people who want to talk to Jason. He gave us more time than he probably wanted to. We're very appreciative. Um, and again, it's a really fun show. Um, and I like that I get to make a show where I talk to people who make cool shows. I like that you guys listen to it. Thank you for your comments. Thank you for your support. Thank you to Jelani and Joel who produce and edit this thing. Thanks to our sponsors who bring this show to you for free. We will see you soon.